Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. First of all, before we get started, I want to say really quickly a big thank you one more time to you for the generosity of this church and the prayers of this church. I'm halfway through my sabbatical, and because you all love me, you're all praying for me, and then when you see me, you say, how's the sabbatical going? Answer, it's going great. So thank you for praying for me. God has been speaking to me. I've had a lot of extra time to to study and pray and seek God's face, and I'm excited to take the things he's teaching me during this season and try to walk them out with you together, God willing, for many years to come. One of my favorite parts about the sabbatical, by the way, has been listening to God's word preached by Chauncey and Jared and Gavin. Hasn't it been awesome? And one of the things I was going to do during the sabbatical was go visit a few other churches in our community, but I just can't bring myself to not come to Christ Community Church every Sunday so far. Because I love all of you so much and because it's such a joy and privilege to hear God's word preached through such godly saints. Don't take it for granted, saints. Don't take it for granted. And by the way, um, it's just a feast for my soul to sit under the word of God preached. I hope it is for you too. I would say it's a mark of spiritual health. People that know Jesus love to sit under the word of God preached in the community of saints because Christ gives himself to us in those moments. Now... I'm going to be in the pulpit this week and next week to help us wrestle with some challenging texts. And then my plan is for the last half of the sabbatical to sit down with you in the pew for another couple of months. So that's the plan. Today we are turning to a section in First Peter. We've been enjoying this book and studying this book, going through every verse. And we've got to a section today, which I'm going to say from the beginning, this is a powerful and empowering text. This is a liberating text. But this is probably not a text that most of us initially hear as powerful, empowering, or liberating. In fact, this is a text that for many of us here, when we read the words of verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but able to the unjust. 
uh, frustration might begin to rise up in our souls because of how Satan has very effectively twisted this scripture. Listen, saints, Satan is a scripture twister. He does that. He's a liar. And one of the many ways that he lies is take the truth of God and twist it. We saw him doing it with Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4 when we read about the temptation of Jesus. Satan quotes the Psalms but twists them. Wrong text for the wrong situation applied wrongly in a way that instead of being the life-giving true word of God would have been twisted to become the destructive false word of God. And Satan has done that with this text. Certainly in American history, I'll say a word more about that. But I just want to start from the beginning by saying, I've been praying this week that the Holy Spirit is going to help us to untwist this text and hear the word of God as it is really spoken to us, because this is a great text of scripture. And not only am I asking for the help of the Holy Spirit, but I also want to begin this sermon by seeking help from one of my teachers and mentors whose picture is about to appear on the screen behind me. You may not recognize him. I'm guessing most of you do not. His name is Howard Thurman. And I call him one of my teachers and mentors, despite the fact that he died in 1981, four years before I was born, because I've spent a lot of time with his books and watching and listening to his interviews. Howard Thurman was born in 1899, and he learned the Christian faith. He learned to trust and follow Jesus really at the feet of his grandmother. Both of his grandparents had been slaves. She learned to trust Jesus and to hold to the promises of God at a time when she was in slavery and when the people who were discipling her and teaching her about faith in Christ had been enslaved by a brutal, oppressive, racist slavery system for generations. And in the context of that oppression and suffering, they had found Jesus to be a great savior and a great deliverer, a great forgiver and a great friend. And they had put their hope in Jesus. And Howard Thurman's grandmother lived through the experience of getting to praise Jesus and say, you heard my prayers and my mama's prayer and my grandma's prayer that now we are free socially and economically like you had already made us free spiritually. Howard Thurman learned the faith at the feet of that grandmother. And as he grew up, he grew up in a family that saw Christian faith and education as the pathways through which we could pursue this elusive thing called racial equity and racial unity in America. Thurman was brilliant, and he became a Baptist pastor. And then later he became uh, one of the pastors of what was really one of the first attempts at a multi-ethnic church in the United States of America, a pioneer in many ways. Eventually, one of the other ways he was a pioneer was becoming the first African-American chaplain and dean at a white university. He became a dean and chaplain at Boston University. And through his writings and his teaching and mentoring, uh, he became a mentor to the younger generation. Howard Thurman was close friends with Martin Luther King Jr. Or sorry, Martin Luther King Sr. And he was an inspiration to Martin Luther King Jr. and the younger leaders of, of Dr. King Jr.'s generation. In fact, long before the Montgomery bus boycott, Howard Thurman had been wrestling with what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount and had gone and met with Gandhi and had learned the tactics of nonviolent resistance and was teaching that to this younger generation such that you could call him the grandfather of the civil rights movement. And 
I don't think he was perfect. He, he picked up some, a few goofy theological ideas from some of his seminary professors. But at his best, his writings are very powerful on the topics of prayer, on the topics of what does it mean to follow Jesus, and what does it mean to seek good in a world that has been marred by evil. And I'm introducing you to Howard Thurman right now because in one of his most famous books called Jesus and the Disinherited, he makes a point at the beginning of the book, which might sound strange to us at first, but I think it's true and it's very relevant and helpful to help us hear this word from 1 Peter chapter 2. And the point that he makes is this. This may sound strange to you at first, but I want you to think about it. He said, sometimes Christians spend too much time talking about what Christianity teaches us we ought to do for the poor. Does that sound strange to you so far? He said, we spend too much time talking about that, not because the Bible doesn't talk about it. Jesus says to be generous to the poor. Old Testament says be generous to the poor. New Testament says be generous to the poor. But he says sometimes we talk about that so much and so exclusively that we might give the incorrect impression that Christians are wealthy people who go help poor people. But he says what we might be missing is the fact that when Jesus in Luke chapter 4 announced his vocation, he says, I came to preach good news to the poor themselves. Do you hear that? The the gospel does speak to those of us, and and I say us because in world history standards and in even the world today standards, all of us in this room would be considered wealthy. Every one of us. The gospel does speak to those who have inherited great wealth and ease of lifestyle about being freed in Christ to be content and to be radically generous. But the gospel speaks even more emphatically to those who are poor. And Howard Thurman made the point, not only does Jesus say, I'm preaching good news to the poor themselves, but the majority of Christians throughout history and in the world today are poor. That's even more true now than it was when Howard Thurman wrote it, because by God's grace, millions of people have come to know Christ in the last generation throughout South America and Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, and the majority of those have been very poor. And yet they found Christ to be a help to them. In in the book, he's talking and saying, I want to write about what does Jesus not only say to wealthy, privileged Christians about what we can do with with those gifts that we've received from God and how we can bless other people, but what does it say to the disinherited, to the oppressed, to the afflicted themselves? And what he's saying is, Jesus was oppressed. Jesus was afflicted. Jesus was disinherited. And he teaches us a way of freedom so that we do not have to wait for our social, economic, political situation to get sorted out before we can be free. Even if we're struggling and poor and oppressed, we can be free right now. That's what Howard Thurman was saying. And I introduce that idea now because I want to say that's exactly what's happening in this text of Scripture. Let's think for a second about the context. Who is writing and who is he writing to? Well, these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they're written by the Apostle Peter. And the Apostle Peter spent his whole life poor and marginalized and much of his life oppressed. The Apostle Peter was a Jewish person at a time when the Jews uh, were experiencing what it's like to be colonized and oppressed by Imperial Rome. They knew what it was like to be under the boot of political oppression. But within the Jewish community, there was also degrees of privilege and degrees of marginalization. And 
Peter did not come from a wealthy Jewish family. He, he was not a chief priest, nor was he a member of the Sanhedrin. He grew up in Galilee, which was a, an area and a region that tended to be disrespected and dismissed even by the Jewish community. So Howard Thurman was right when he says Jesus and Peter and most of his apostles were minorities of, among minorities. They were afflicted. Peter grew up as a working fisherman, a peasant, in a time when that was a dangerous task. If you get injured, there is no workman's comp. If the fish start biting, you don't get to apply for unemployment. If things are going really well, you might feel wealthy for a couple of months, but then you might be destitute two months later. And when, G- when Peter received the call to follow Jesus, he went from a vulnerable position to a much more vulnerable position. Jesus said at the beginning, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. P- Jesus said to Peter from the beginning, leave your boat, leave your high- livelihood and come follow me. When Peter made the decision to follow Jesus, he became an enemy of the state. Not because Jesus or Peter were doing anything, any criminal or subversive activity, but because the Roman Empire and much of the Jewish religious and political establishment saw Jesus as a grave threat. And all of his talk about the kingdom of God. So Peter, already when he wrote this words, he had many times been beaten, many times had been imprisoned. And as Jared reminded us a couple of weeks ago, he would eventually be killed by the Roman emperor. Probably, by the way, we, it's difficult to say for sure, but... The most reliable historical witnesses tell us that the Emperor Nero ordered for Peter to be crucified, but Peter made the request, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as my master. Crucify me upside down. He died being crucified upside down. That's Peter. That's who's writing. He knows what it's like to be afflicted, what it's like to suffer unjustly. Now, who is he writing to? The word translated servants in verse 18 is a word that refers specifically to household servants or household bond servants or household slaves. Any of those would be a way to translate this. As opposed to, for example, slaves working in the mines who were oppressed much more viciously in this Roman context. But the household slaves were still slaves. What it meant to be a household slave could be a lot of different things. It could be from very grueling manual labor, perhaps in the field or in the house, all the way to basically being a wealth assets manager for a very wealthy Roman patron. So for some of them, the experience might have been much like Joseph in the book of Genesis, who was a slave, and yet he lived with quite a bit of ease and privilege. It was a spectrum. But everywhere on that spectrum, even if your life was characterized by comfort and by ease, you were still a slave. Because there was comfort and ease... Peasants, people like Peter, would sometimes sell themselves into slavery because it was secure. At least you knew where you were going to live. At least you knew you were going to have food if you were a household servant in a wealthy Roman house. But once you got in there, you were there. It was possible sometimes to buy your freedom, which is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.21 says to these same kinds of servants, it's Christians in the same situation, if you can get your freedom, do it. Try to get out of slavery if you can. But even if you're stuck there, you can live as free right now because in Christ you are free. Same thing Peter's saying here. There was no underground railroad. There had been slave revolts. All of them were brutally crushed by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a force of unprecedented military and economic power. And that power was built on an infrastructure 
at, at which the core was the oikos, the household of the wealthy Roman, and, and central to that was this economy that involved slavery. So if any slave started revolt, brutal crush of revolt by the Roman Empire is what's happened. So in other words, Peter is speaking to, speaking to people, and he's saying, I'm oppressed, and you're more oppressed than me. You're more afflicted than me. And you, now that you're free spiritually in Christ, may be wrestling with, what do I do? How do I live? And what Peter is trying to say to them is, in Christ Jesus, you're free now, and you can live free now. And there's something honorable and powerful and redemptive about the vocation that's upon your life. Peter's message as an oppressed person writing to oppressed people is one day Jesus will put an end to our oppression. Isn't that good news? One day Jesus will put an end to our oppression, but we don't have to wait until that day to be free. We can live as the free, empowered, truth-speaking people of God right now in the midst of our situation. And we could sum up the way he tells them to live with six words in our text. In verse 18, I want you to see that word respect. Everybody say respect. The Greek word here could be translated reverential fear, but he's not talking about fear of punishment. What he's saying is, this person who's called your master is created by God, created in the image of God, loved by God. And if they're treating you unjustly, that means like, unlike, unlike you, they're in a vulnerable position. You're safe and secure in the arms of Jesus, but their soul is in danger. And you need to show respect and reverence for their dignity as you contend for their souls. Now, this is a word... To some of us who are stuck in situations of affliction and being mistreated and we're trying to get out, we're trying to change it, but sometimes it takes a long time. It says, how do you live? Respect the dignity of every human being, even those that are mistreating you. And then we can skip down to verse 19 and look at these three words. These are perhaps the most important. Everybody say mindful of God. Mindful of God. What it means is every day as you live, Peter is saying, remember whose you are. Be mindful of God. Think about God. Meditate on the Word of God. Meditate on the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that God loved you enough to come endure oppression and affliction so that you could be free and forgiven and accepted. Meditate on the destiny that God has promised you to reign with Christ forever. Meditate on who God says you are and what God says about all the people around you, around you including your enemies who are afflicting you. Be mindful of God. And then verse 20 says, do good. Everybody say, do good. It means seek to bless people. Seek to give life to people, even to your enemies. Now, I want to make an important clarification here. When Peter says, to, when he encourages us to endure patiently doing good, even when we're suffering, Thomas Aquinas was quite right when he said, being patient in the face of the unjust suffering of another person is never a virtue. When another person is suffering, your calling from God is to do everything you can to eliminate that unjust suffering. But there are situations in the Christian life in which we resist injustice and we resist oppression and we seek all forms of freedom, but we're stuck for a while waiting. And in the providence of God, as we wait, we can still do good. This is what Jesus did and it was what Jesus taught when he said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, do good to those who hate you. So the conduct that he's calling them to live is be respectful, be mindful of God, do good. But all of that conduct is based on something deeper, 
which he said a few verses ago. These verses are not in your bulletin, but the context is really important. So if you've got a Bible, look up a couple of verses to verses 15 and 16. This is when Peter was talking about how we should live resisting evil when the civil authority itself is doing evil, as in the case of the Roman Empire. And he says, be respectful. He says, do good. He says the same stuff. In verse 15, he says, for this is the will of good, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, the world is living in a fog of deception, lies, evil. And Christians are called to be people of truth and love who do good. And by doing good, we expose the lies. We put to silence the mouth of the liar. And then verse 16, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He says, you are bondservants of God in Christ, therefore you are free, regardless of your circumstances. I want you to hear something that's so crucial for us. I was reading some time ago the writings of Brother Yoon, who's a, he was a pioneer within the Chinese house church movement, spent a lot of time being tortured and afflicted by an oppressive communist regime. Spent a lot of time in prison. Later, when he was out after leading thousands of people to Christ, he became so well-known and persecuted that for the protection of others, he had to come to the West. And he wrote about Christian freedom, and he said, I love my American brothers and sisters, and now that I've spent more time here, I fear and concern... I'm concerned for them because they love the idea of freedom, but they seem to think that freedom is dependent on a political or economic or social situation. And so he says, many American Christians who enjoy great political and economic freedom, nonetheless, live as slaves to their passion, slave to greed, slave to the need to achieve and to earn more and to buy more. He said, I know many poor and oppressed and afflicted and imprisoned Chinese Christians who would wake up every day and say, praise God, we are free. There's a deeper freedom here that Peter is talking about. And, and what I want to say here, here's the, the core idea that's behind and beneath all these calls to be respectful and to do good. Your identity is not determined by your temporary circumstances. Your identity is not determined by what people think and feel and say about you. Your identity is not determined by what you think and feel and say about yourself. Isn't that good news? Sometimes the worst voices are the ones in my head. Anybody relate to that? Your identity is not determined by your circumstances, by what people say or feel or think about you. What you say or feel or think about yourself, your identity is determined by what God says about you. You are who God says you are. Everybody turn to your neighbor. I need you to help me preach this point. Say, you are who God says you are. I I don't think y'all said that like you believe it. Try the other side. You are who God says you are. I've got lyrics in my head. I think maybe it was Maverick City Music this week. I am who you say I am. Is that from Maverick City Music? That's a good prayer, y'all. Let's pray to God. Everybody say, I am who you say I am. Listen, 1 Peter 2 has been all about who God said you are. I'm not going to go read it now, but let me just remind you. You can go study it again this week. Who has God said you are in 1 Peter 2? God says you are free. Let that sink in. You are free right now. 
God says, you are chosen. The world may have rejected you like it rejected Jesus, but God chose you. Your family may reject you. Your loved ones may reject you, but God chose you. God says, according to 1 Peter 2, you are loved. People may hate you, but God loves you. God says in 1 Peter 2, you are honorable. People may shame you like they shamed Jesus Christ, but God's going to honor you like he honored Jesus Christ. When the father raised his son from the grave and vindicated him. You are a holy nation. You belong to a people that is set apart for God and set apart to enjoy loving one another forever. Isn't that good news? What does the scripture say in 1 Peter 2? It says, you are a participant in the prophetic, priestly, and kingly vocation of Jesus Christ. In Christ, you're a prophet who speaks God's word to the world. In Christ, you're a priest who ministers God's presence to the world through your loving service and who represents the world to God through your prayers. And you're participating in the kingly reign of Jesus as you do good in a way that drives back evil and injustice and oppression in the world. That's who you are. In Christ. In Christ, here's the reality. You're destined to reign forever in the new creation with a resurrected body. Has that business of hope Jared was talking about really sunk in for us? Because if you don't believe in the hope of the gospel, you might think Peter is sincere because he's not speaking from a position of privilege and power. He's speaking from a position of one who is afflicted and oppressed. But you might still think he's crazy. But what the gospel says is this, whatever affliction you're experiencing right now is very temporary. And then there will be millions upon millions of years of reigning with Christ. Which says, effectively, Peter is writing to his brothers and sisters who, like him, are in a a situation of affliction. He's saying, you may feel and look vulnerable, but in fact, you are free, safe, secure, loved, and powerful. And that human man, whom you call master, may look powerful and secure, but in fact, he's in great danger. As a citizen of heaven, an ambassador of Jesus, you have a responsibility to steward your position of spiritual freedom, power, and privilege to help this weak and vulnerable individual called master. It is crazy if the gospel is not true. But do you see how the gospel turns the value system of the world upside down and reverses this power dynamic? You're free to do good. You're free to live with respect. You're free to love. You're free to hope in God for your deliverance. It's a glorious passage, but as I said at the beginning, it's one which the devil has twisted as he does. Because the reality is, during those long years of slavery in the United States, at first the slave owners didn't want their slaves to hear the gospel at all. Because they were afraid if these people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're going to start having spiritual aspirations that's going to cause them to not want to be our slaves anymore. Which was accurate. But then they thought, you know what, we don't have to give them the whole thing. So we're just going to bring preachers in here to read Ephesians 6 and 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, and twist those texts and tell them, God wants you to be a slave forever. This is one of many passages that the devil has twisted very effectively. Wrong passage for the situation, friends, and wrong application of the text. If we ask the question, okay, there's, there's slavery in America, The system of slavery is inherently unjust, and now it's built on a foundation of racism, which denies what the Bible teaches about the dignity of every human being, a demonic foundation of racism 
that really emerges in the 18th and 19th centuries had nothing to do with slavery in the first century. And not only is it built on that foundation of racism, but it's also built on the slave trade, which involves kidnapping and all sorts of things that today we would call war crimes. And it involves shipping people over on boats that are so brutal that the vast majority of these would-be slaves die in misery before they get here. What does God's word say to that? I've got a few suggestions. We could evoke Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 through 17, when God is rebuking his beloved people for their participation in the world's injustice. And he says, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. What do you do in the face of oppression? You correct it. Everybody say correct oppression. And then somebody might respond, but it's not injustice because it's the law of the land. It's all legal. I've got the paperwork. And then we might go back to Isaiah and quote chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, which says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, to the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy of my people from their rights, and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the father this their prey. In other words, when the law is oppressive, the law is no law. It's still injustice, even if it's injustice in the name of the law. And then we might go to Isaiah chapter 58 to all those pious people. You say, how could all these devout Christian people be wrong? Look at all these pious slave owners. And then we could read Isaiah 58, which God rebukes the false piety of his people and says, you're fasting and you're seeking my face, but I don't like your fast. It's not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Or we could quote the same theme being sounded by Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Amos in Amos chapter 5 when he's writing to people who worship him with their words and with their songs but who afflict one another. And Amos 5 verse 23 and 24 says, Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We can find the same theme sounded in the law of Moses. We can find it in the Psalms. We can find it in the Proverbs when King Lemuel's mother tells him, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the cause of the poor and needy. We can find it coming out of the lips of Jesus when he channels those prophets whom he inspired centuries before and says to the Pharisees, the hypocrites of his time, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint and dill and cumin, but neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. What I'm trying to say is that when Frederick Douglass and William Wilberforce quoted the scriptures and for decades at great personal cost said, in the name of God, the Atlantic slave trade must stop and the slaves must be set free, whatever the cost, they were right. They were right. And then you say, what about Harriet Tubman and all those Quakers and Methodists in the Underground Railroad? Were they disobeying 1 Peter 2.18? Well, friends, I'm just a man, but my answer is no, they weren't. Wrong text for the situation. Harriet Tubman stood firmly in the tradition of those midwives Jared talked to you about two weeks ago. Remember them? The midwives of Egypt. When Pharaoh said, kill the firstborn babies. And Exodus 1.17 says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live. In other words, these brave women, because they trusted and feared and loved and served God, they were free to stand up to the most powerful man in the world. They put their bodies between his murderous power and these vulnerable children, just like Harriet Tubman did. And God honored them just like he has honored her. 
So then what do we do with 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25? Do we cut it out of our Bibles? I'm just going to say as a general principle, don't cut anything out of your Bible. And actually what I'm saying is, if we, with the help of the Holy Spirit, can untwist this text, not only do we not, not need to cut it out, we don't need to be embarrassed about it, what we need to do is embrace it. And celebrate it and be set free by it. Because what it's saying is not contradicting all these other texts. Listen, Bible guys, the Bible is clear and emphatic. If you see oppression and you can stop it, stop it. Okay? If you see oppression and if you're not sure if you can stop it or not, go ahead and try. Seek justice. Correct oppression. But you might find yourself in a situation like that of... Some folks, we had some church members this week texting some friends of ours who are in a situation where they're being oppressed by an openly wicked and oppressive regime. And right now there's political protests going on and the ground is shaking in this country and trying to check on the friends, see if they're safe. But they don't live in a country that acknowledges their right to protest for right. The reason Dr. King always said the greatness of America is the right to protest for right is because he just got thrown in jail for a few weeks when he stood up for what was right. And this country I'm talking about, our Christian friends, if they join the protest, it's very likely they're going to get put in a hole without a trial. Their families will never see them again. What if you're in that situation? Or if we bring it maybe a little closer to home for some of us here. What if you're in a situation in which, in the name of God, by the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, you are in fact fighting for justice, but the longer you're at it, the more you come to realize that the fruit of your labors is mostly going to come 30 years after you've gone to heaven. And in the meantime, for a little while you feel stuck. What does this text say? It says, you're already free in Christ, so you can do good. You can have compassion on your enemies because your future is secure and theirs is in danger. You don't have to seek to humiliate them. You can seek their redemption. You can fight for them just like Jesus did. And it's that like Jesus that I want you to think about right now because it's what Peter wants us to think about. Look at the second half of our text today, friends. Let's just read it one more time, starting verse 21. Peter says, for to this you have been called. He's talking about you've been called to righteous suffering, to keep doing good even when you're mistreated. Because Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There is within the Christian life an essential call that none of us can ignore, which is a call to suffering. I'm going to say more about what that means in a moment. But he goes on to describe our Lord Jesus in this way. He's describing the life of Jesus while quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. It says of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." You see, in Isaiah, there was two strands of prophecy. One said, God's going to rescue his people by sending a great and powerful king. And the other one said, God is going to rescue his people by sending a humble, suffering servant. 600 years later, in the time of Jesus, God's people were still trying to figure out what that was about. Who was this suffering servant? Does it speak about Israel as a whole? Is it some prophet? 
And what Peter is saying, the mighty king who defeats evil is Jesus and the suffering servant is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. Jesus overcame evil. He flexed his strength to rescue us precisely by suffering unjustly. He committed no sin. He only did good. When people slandered him and lied about him, he spoke the truth and remained silent. He entrusted his soul to his father, saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. He died for our sins. This is an important hour. Peter is saying to these slaves, he died for my sins and your sins. He's reminding us of that truth we've quoted so often, that the line between good and evil does not lie between us and our enemies. It goes through the soul of every human being. Jesus on his body was afflicted because he was bearing my evil, my sin, and all of its consequences so that I could be healed by his wounds. We had gone astray like foolish sheep. We were wandering, but Jesus brought us back. He's our good shepherd who rescues us and cares for us. And Peter is saying something that he knew about in a deep and personal way. Which is that that love of God revealed in the suffering of Jesus Christ is the very thing that sets us free. And it's also the model for life for us now. When Peter received the call to follow Jesus, he walked into suffering. Now, I'm almost out of time here. I'm almost done here. But I want to drop a few key ideas to bring this home for us. For us here today as we finish. Christians, listen carefully to this please. Christians are called to suffering because Christians are called to truth and love. I want you to understand that we do not glorify suffering for its own sake. I do not like suffering. If you like suffering, I will pray for you. I do not like suffering. I was praying for a little more space for our kids where we could still minister on the south side, but... Let the boys and girls have their own rooms and bathrooms. And God provided a house. And in the backyard of the house is a hot tub. And I like to get in that. And I do not suffer while I'm in there, guys. God is a God of comfort. And that hot tub is very comforting. It's maybe not what that verse is about. But it's still a gift I can give thanks to God. My point here is we don't glorify suffering for its own sake. Saints. You hear me on that? But what I want you to hear is this. Suffering is not an essential part of love. Why do I say that? I say that because forever in heaven we're going to love perfectly and we'll be done with suffering forever. Suffering, in fact, is the, I mean, excuse me, love is in fact the only way you can experience joy. If you don't love anything, you'll never know joy. Joy is a fruit of love. But suffering is a necessary part of what it looks like to love people and to be loyal to the truth in a world that is still broken by sin and evil while we wait for Jesus to come back. You hear the difference there? Suffering is a necessary part of being people of love and truth in this world. So as Christians, we don't pursue suffering. Please do not go out of here and go try and find some suffering. Don't pursue suffering. Instead, pursue truth and pursue love. Now, how does this work? As Christians in America, we need to not exaggerate our suffering, right? So many Christians in so many parts of the world face persecution every day. I mentioned some of them just a moment ago. They face serious suffering. We shouldn't romanticize those Christians. I know a bunch of them. They struggle with temptation and sin, just like you and me. We should pray for them. Don't romanticize them. 
But a lot of them have to suffer a lot more than we do. We shouldn't exaggerate our suffering, but it would also be a grave mistake to minimize our call to suffering, lest we normalize a loveless life. How does this work practically? Well, I don't know what it's going to look like in your life. Let me just describe what it could look like. For example, if we sense Jesus calling us deeply into some of the mission that we at Christ Community Church have been committing to. If you get serious about making sure every fatherless kid in South Oklahoma City has a mentor, that will cost you something. Few people are nodding their heads because they've already started to try. If you get serious about making sure every neighborhood and every apartment complex in our community, just where we're planted, has somebody who's living there, and not just living there, it doesn't do anything, we just live there, guys. But if we live there and we pray and we build relationships with neighbors and we're in their house and they're in our house and we're sharing the gospel and we're contending for the salvation of the soul, you say, I'm going to keep going until every neighborhood has a witness. That's going to cost something. If you get serious about working to ensure every family in our little community has access to high quality health care and high quality education, that's going to cost something. If you get serious to saying, I want in every school where little hearts and minds are being nurtured, I want every school to have a Christian there serving and praying and supporting teachers and tutoring kids, that's going to cost something. Now, I don't want to exaggerate this because anybody who's been trying to do it for a while knows that what Jesus said is true. We receive so much more than we give. Have you, have you found that to be true? But if we lie about the cost up front, then you'll quit two weeks in. More like six months in my experience. If you keep pressing, it's going to cost you something. And if you find yourself being tired and feeling emotionally depleted and thinking, I need a miracle of grace to sustain me, that's a good sign. Then we learn to depend upon the grace of God. And then the, the lies might start popping up and the world might say, you have a Messiah complex. You think you're really going to save these people? Here's the truth of the Holy Spirit. God says, you don't have a Messiah complex. What you have is the great honor and dignity of sharing in the suffering love of the only Messiah. His name is Jesus. You've got a vocation to call him. And when you feel tempted to quit, but don't quit because the suffering joy of Christ, the loving, self-giving joy of Christ is welling up inside you, then you'll be living what this passage of Scripture is all about. One more thought before I say a prayer and get in my seat. Some of you are in situations in which you're mistreated. Thanks be to God, nobody in here is a slave. I mean, really, we shouldn't take that for granted. Pretty much every civilization in human history, once it reached a certain point of development, had a lot of slaves. But by the majestic grace and providence of God, there was a time in which God raised up prophets who spoke the word of God and afflicted the consciences of certain cultures such that slavery is now illegal where we live still happens all over the world, but it's illegal here. So none of us are slaves. But I don't want to minimize the fact that many of you are living in situations in which you're mistreated. And I don't have time to go into a lot of detail here, but I want to say this. Listen, if we can get you out of that situation, if we can change that situation, if we can put an end to oppression, let's do it. The Bible's clear. Let's do it. don't want you to stay in a situation of affliction. But if God has you in a situation to where, like Peter and like those he was writing... You know Jesus is going to get you out at some day, but you're here for now. What I want you to hear is this. 
You may feel trapped, but the word of God says you are free. And you can live with dignity and you can be an agent of truth and love right where you are. If you're feeling like once I get to the other side of this situation, I'll be free. I just want to proclaim to you the truth of the gospel. You're free right now because your identity and destiny is not determined by your situation, by what people say to you or what you say or think or feel. It's by the word of God. Let me say a prayer for you. Our father in heaven, I just pray That your Holy Spirit would help us to continue to internalize these truths. They're so good. They're so life-giving. But sometimes it's hard to swallow your truth so it can be nourished by it. And I know that as a vehicle, as a channel of your word, I'm far from perfect or adequate. So I just ask for the help of your Holy Spirit right now as we come to the Lord's table. Jesus, we say, thank you for suffering for our salvation and for our freedom. And we say, would you give us grace to follow you? Lord, as we're coming to your table now, we're wanting to renew our discipleship and say, forgive us. Lord, all of us have been selfish and prideful at times. Forgive us and give us grace to live out our identity as your free and beloved children. In Christ's name I pray.